Well, uh, before we look into God's word, uh, let us let us pray together. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you that you sent your Son uh, to take our sins and to uh, reconcile us to you. And I pray that uh, the words of you of your word that we look at this morning may jump out at us and uh, strike us at the heart. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. I'd like to start by asking you all a very important question. Do you believe you deserve to go to heaven when you die? Really, truly think about this. I'm asking you all because the answer to this question will have a very big influence on your attitudes and conduct throughout your life. I'm asking this because it will have a big effect on your attitude towards God. And that attitude towards God has eternal consequences. There are millions of people in the world today who suppose they will go to heaven when they die simply because they say they haven't done anything wrong. It's not really something they have particularly thought about much in their lives. It's just a matter of being the best person they can be. Don't break any major laws of society. And whatever faults do come to the surface of your personality, like the occasional selfishness, deceit, or violent anger, well, that's just human nature, isn't it? Just as the German poet Heinrich Heine said on his deathbed, of course, God will forgive me. That's his job. And then there are billions in the world today who suppose they will go to heaven when they die because of the special routines and works they have done. In their eyes, God, or the gods, requires an extremely specific set of routines to be performed to request a little bit of forgiveness, maybe gain a tiny bit of merit, or what is known as good karma, or perhaps in the hopes of getting some item of value. This idea of working enough to please God, to gain acceptance into heaven, or even make God give you something, are the most widespread in the world today. It is the pure definition of religion, man's attempt at pleasing God by doing rituals and routine works. As if we humans could ever give something to the creator of life, the universe, and everything in between. And if you didn't build up enough worthiness to get into heaven, well, I guess you just didn't work hard enough, did you? So you will be spending a lot of time in a place of damnation. But is this all there is? Is life just about acting out certain routines like a robot for God to escape some sort of hell? Or do we just live our lives truly any which way we want and then just order God to forgive us because that's his job? Today we look at a passage of the Bible which I hope really strikes at the heart. Because this passage involves two condemned criminals who haven't tried to be the best people they can be, who are receiving the agonizing punishment set by law for their crimes, and until this point have probably never even thought about what is to come when they die. Two men sentenced to death for their crimes and one innocent man crucified in between them. 
So first off, I'd like to talk, start talking about this man in the middle. Who is this man? Why is he so special? And what is this innocent man doing being crucified in the center amongst two criminals? The name of the man in the middle is Jesus. And if you read the four accounts of his life in the Bible, you will learn about where he was born, where he lived, who his descendants were, and there was by no means anything, at least in terms of money and power, that would attract people to him. You will learn that up until this gruesome point in history we've just read about, this man has spent the past three years preaching, teaching, miraculously healing the sick, and on occasion even raising the dead back to life. You will see how he saw the suffering of those around him and how he felt it to its fullest. In fact, the shortest verse in the Bible consists of only two words. Jesus wept. If you read the Gospel accounts of what Jesus experienced, you will see how the religious leaders of that day hated him and were constantly trying to sabotage his ministry and even stone him on the spot, even while they were witness to his wondrous works. Ultimately, you will see through, the, through reading the New Testament how he was condemned to death by crucifixion, never cursing his enemies for what they were doing to him, raised up on a crucifix in between two criminals, buried in a rich man's tomb, then a little while later, raised back to life. So this brings me to my first main point. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ being the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one or chosen one. Now, the reason why I want to highlight this is because there is one thing in the Gospels that truly sets Jesus apart from all other people mentioned in the Bible or even people in other ancient writings. Four words. And so was fulfilled. All throughout the four Gospels, these four words, or similar meaning, come up again and again in reference to Jesus. And that is because, again and again, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies in the writings of the Old Testament. And all over the Old Testament are verses and chapters that speak of the coming Messiah, the one who would bring uh, ultimate peace between us and God. They mention where he would be born, which tribe he would be descended from, that he would heal the sick, he would suffer greatly, and ultimately bear our sins. But is it possible that this Jesus managed to carry out all these predictions just by fluke chance? Well, a man by the name of Professor Peter Stoner published in 1944 his research titled Science Speaks, Scientific Proof of the Accuracy of Prophecy and the Bible. In his publication, he concluded that the chances of one person fulfilling just eight of the over 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament referring to the Messiah was just one chance in 100,000 billion. That's one followed by 17 zeros after it. And if that wasn't enough, how about one person fulfilling 48 of the over 300 prophecies? Stoner calculated these odds at one chance in 10 to the power of 157. So that's a, that's a one with 157 zeros following it. 
there are better chances of winning the biggest lottery in the whole world than one person fulfilling the number of Old Testament prophecies that Jesus did. So Jesus was not just a random character in history, but truly the Messiah that was predicted to come. So what was the Messiah or Christ meant to do? What was his purpose? Well, while the Old Testament uses descriptions of the Messiah to come, such as one who would heal the sick, uh, be acquainted with sorrow, and have his hands and feet pierced, the fundamental reason why he came was ultimately to bring peace between us and God. To bear the sin of our lives on his shoulders, so that we may leave wickedness behind and start living the way God intended us to. And as I just mentioned, there's only one person who fit the bill so precisely. But not only is Jesus the Christ that was predicted to come, but he was also God become man. A little earlier in the book of Isaiah, which was read earlier on, in chapter 7, it speaks of the virgin giving birth to a son who will be called Emmanuel, which means God among us. And this is what Jesus says of himself in John chapter 10, when he clearly states to all around him, I and the Father are one. Jesus proclaimed that in all essence, he is God among them. So ultimately, there are only two ways that people react to who Jesus is and what he has done. There are those who reject him, and those that turn to Jesus and accept him as Christ, their Lord and Saviour. So let's go back to the passage in Luke uh, that we were looking at this morning, uh, which is Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. And that's on page 1046 in the uh, Church Bibles. It's Luke chapter 23, verses 39 uh, to 43, on page 1046. And just keep it open as we look through it together. I'd like you to see the two categories of people I've just mentioned characterized by the two criminals on either side of Jesus. So now that I've talked about the man in the middle, I'll speak about the men on either side of him. And this brings me to my second main point. Many reject the Christ. Many reject the Christ. Let's just refresh our memories and read what the first criminal says in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now you may be thinking, well, what's wrong here? He did, after all, call him the Christ, right? Well, the first thing to note here is that this criminal is actually joining in with the crowds around them at hurling insults at Jesus. The people who are standing watch there have been saying the same sorts of things at Jesus while he was being crucified. And you can see that a little earlier in verse 35, where it says, The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Now the second thing to note here is that just like the crowd around them, this first thief also casts doubt on Jesus' identity as the Christ. Even though the crowds around them had seen his works, and no doubt this first thief would have heard of them, and even though the chances of anyone else other than Jesus being the Messiah are mathematically impossible, 
these people still have the audacity to demand him to prove himself. So while the language of the first thief may not look at all harsh, he is actually hurling a great insult at Jesus just by questioning his abilities and even telling him that he should give up the work of salvation he was sent to do. To paraphrase what the first thief said, it sounds something like, Hey, aren't you meant to be that almighty Messiah everyone's been talking about? Come on then, do your magic and get yourself out of this one. And while you're at it, get me out of this too. Even while he is dying a slow and painful death, just like the other two people with him, this first thief has, is not thinking about what is to come when he dies or show any sign of sorrow for his past crimes. Through all the agony and torture on a crucifix, the only thing he still finds the time to do is yell out abuse at God and demand to be rescued. Now look at your own life and the people around you in the world today. How often have you been offended and angry at God for not giving you the things you wanted? How often do you see people arrogantly declare, well, if God really exists, why doesn't he do a miracle for me then? How often do you see people everywhere, or even you yourself, just blurt out blasphemy after blasphemy simply because there's nothing smarter to say when frustrated or surprised? How often have you rejected God and told him to take a hike so you can live life your own way? See, it's not the things we consider the big sins, like murder or adultery, that stain us with sin. It's also the little things that we don't really consider that make us sinners. Leaving things undone when we should have done them. The little white lies that we don't think will hurt anyone. How about downloading music off the internet without the artist getting a single cent for their work? See, it's very easy for us to compare ourselves to other people we think are thoroughly evil. And it always sounds something like, oh, well, at least I'm not Hitler, or at least I'm not as evil as those crusaders and witch hunters in history. Don't ever be fooled into a false sense of security by just comparing yourself to other people you think are worse than you. Compare yourself to Jesus. Use God's law as the benchmark for your life and see how far you can go before having any sinful thoughts and desires. There is not a single person that could solemnly ever say, I have never rejected God. I truly deserve heaven. I've never disobeyed my parents. I've never lied. I've never acted selfishly. And here's the cause of the problem. It's not that we just have bad habits that make us lie, cheat, and steal. It's not that we're just going through a bad time in our society where we're just going through a tough patch in our morality. The truth is, we all have a corrupted heart. A heart that is by nature totally against God. A heart that is by nature selfish, deceitful, and adulterous. And you only have to ever have to look at children to truly see the extent of this. Children who are supposed to be the absolute pictures of human innocence in our society. Let me ask you then, 
When was the last time any parent had to actually teach their children how to be selfish? When was the last time any parent had to teach their children to stop saying thank you, to lie, to steal, and bully other children around them so that it can make them feel better about themselves? Oh, but they don't know any better. You're totally right. They don't know any better. Selfishness, lying, stealing, and bullying came prepackaged. So where does all this come from? It comes from a corrupted heart. A corruption of the heart that has been passed on from generation to generation since the beginning of human history. So what could we possibly ever do or give to make it up to God, to say we're really, really sorry if we constantly clench our fists at God and tell God to get lost? The first thief on the cross is receiving the due punishment for his crimes. And just like him, we too deserve the punishment for our unending rejection of God every day. And that is hell for an eternity. You may wonder, what kind of a God would send anyone to hell for an eternity? He is the same just and merciful God who sent his one and only son to die for us on the cross to satisfy God's righteous requirement for total justice upon evil. Jesus, the innocent one, took that eternal punishment of hell onto himself so that we could be reconciled to God if we put our trust in him alone. And that brings me to my third main point. Some accept the Christ and are saved. Some accept the Christ and are saved. And there aren't many more passages in the Bible that so completely highlight this than what happens with the second thief in this passage. So let's read on from verse 40 together. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, before I continue, I should bring to your attention an apparent contradiction in the Bible regarding this passage. In Mark and Matthew's Gospels, the two thieves crucified next to Jesus are only recorded as both hurling insults and nothing more, while here in Luke, one of them actually turns out to be a believer in Jesus. So the question then is, is this really a blatant contradiction? Well, the thing to remember is that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, were written by four separate people with four different perspectives. So while there are many events where they uh, seem to agree on the details, they still do differ with some details on some events. And this sort of thing is not uncommon today. It is very much accepted as evidence in a court of law to have differing eyewitness accounts written from different perspectives, but still highlighting the same events. And that's what I believe is happening here. It's not impossible that Luke was aware of different of a different aspect of this story, 
and chose to go against what Mark and Matthew wrote for that reason. So such, uh, such alterations don't have to be seen as a blatant contradiction, as it is very much po- possible that both criminals at first did revile and insult Jesus, but that later one of them repented. So if Luke was aware of this, it would explain the difference, and there would be no errors here. Two criminals on either side of Jesus with two completely different reactions to it. One rejects him with arrogance and selfishness, and the other repents in trusting his eternity to Jesus. How amazing it is that such a wretched criminal who was sentenced to death for his crimes can turn to Jesus and receive the gift of eternal salvation. And you can tell he's not just giving lip service to Jesus, because you can see how he has actually changed. In literally the dying moments of his life, the second thief suddenly acknowledges his crimes and is humbled to the point where he accepts his agonizing fate. You can see this in verse 41 where he says, We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. See, when you become a Christian, you really do begin to see the wrong in your life and the due punishment for sin dawns on you. It's a very humbling moment when you realize just how wicked you truly are. And that realization is a surefire sign that your heart has been changed. But the next step is the most important, turning to Jesus to be saved. And this is what the thief does on the cross when he said in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Look at that word remember. Compare what this second thief asked of Jesus as opposed to the first. The first thief demanded to be rescued from punishment without a shred of humility. And this second thief humbly asked Jesus not to save his soul, not to take his sin away, but only just remember him when Jesus reigns in heaven. All this thief needed was faith and trust as small as a mustard seed to receive the following reply from Jesus, who turned to him and said in verse 43, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus saves, and he saves completely. The salvation offered by Jesus is not like the teachings of Roman Catholicism, where you accept Jesus as your saviour, but now you will go to purgatory, a sort of lesser hell, to pay for your sins before you are let into heaven. The salvation offered by Jesus is not like other religions, where you must do enough religious works, rituals and some charity for God to finally accept you. The true salvation offered by Jesus saves completely. When you turn to Jesus and ask to be forgiven, your sin is completely dealt with on the cross. And just like the convicted criminal, if you have turned to Jesus, you too are saved today, right now. You are given a blank slate with God, a new lease on life. But there is one thing it doesn't give you, and that is a get-out-of-jail-free card like the one you see in Monopoly. 
See, Jesus didn't rescue the thief from the agonizing pain he was going through on the cross. He only assured him of the paradise to come. And that means that even though we become Christians, as painful as it is, we still have to deal with the consequences of our sinful actions in the here and now. But remember, who was next to that thief hanging on a cross? It was Jesus, suffering the same pain from thick spikes driven through sensitive nerve centers in his arms and feet. Suffering the same pain of having both arms dislocated while hanging on the cross. Jesus was right alongside the second thief, experiencing the exact same pain as he was. We worship a God who knows our pains, who can empathize with us, and knows exactly just how much pain we are going through. If you committed some serious wrongs in the past, but then humbly repented of your sins, you truly are forgiven. But it also means that by God's grace, you can deal with its consequences because he is always there with you. But it also means that if you choose to follow Jesus, you should begin to hate the sin in your life, to stop feeling content with evil. Yes, Jesus died to bear your sins on the cross, but do you just casually take advantage of this without even thinking about who rescued you and what you have been rescued from? Has there ever been a change of heart in your life since the day you say you became a Christian? Who do you truly worship? Do you still live a life of worldliness, going out and getting drunk as much as possible, sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe having someone on the side while being married? Are you still as violent or vulgar and rude as the days before you say you repented? Do you still live a life of gossip and selfishness throughout the week and then come to church on Sunday in an attempt to make it all up to God? If this is you, then remember that you were rescued at the price of Jesus' blood on the cross. Stop continually running back to your sins just because they feel good and you don't want to give them up. Look at your life and be remorseful for your sinful ways. Humble yourself and acknowledge your sins in your life. Ask Jesus for forgiveness and turn away from evil because it is an extremely serious thing when you have no problems with a sin in your life. But if you call yourself a Christian and find that your heart is constantly being torn apart because you see all the wrongs in your life and you can't seem to stop, be encouraged by this passage in the Bible. The devil will use any and every type of lie and trickery to bring as much guilt and sorrow upon you in your life. But remember that Jesus will never send away anyone who turns to him, no matter how many times you have to do it each day. You are right in believing that you don't deserve to be saved, just like this thief on the cross. But out of God's love, you have been, and that is what makes Jesus so unbelievably magnificent. Do not fear, for God has declared that you too will be in paradise on the day that you die. But if you are not a Christian here this morning, I want to encourage you to investigate the claims I've made today. 
Be a true skeptic and investigate with your own eyes if the Bible is trustworthy, that you really need to be saved from sin. Christianity is not a lifestyle choice like choosing your next car, as if following Jesus is the same as choosing to follow Buddha. Christianity is not about fancy buildings with statues and fancy crosses everywhere. It's a matter of where you're going to spend an eternity. And like the criminals on either side of Jesus, there is one thing that all of us share in common. Whether you are the most intelligent professor, the wisest sage, or the most thick-headed oaf, young or old, death will overtake you. Maybe in 40 years' time, or today, or tomorrow. Do not throw away an eternity in paradise simply because you want to cling to your lifestyle and culture. God will demand a full account of your life and what you have done. And if you don't give your sin to Jesus to bear, then you will bear it on yourself for an eternity in hell. There are no secret phrases that you must say to receive the gift of salvation. There's no special things to concentrate your mind on, and there is no sacred ritual to perform. Just say you are truly sorry to God from the heart and pledge yourself to follow Jesus. I'll finish with the reading from Romans. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Jesus, the righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous, so that we may be reconciled with God. And after the unimaginable suffering and death he went through, he rose again to absolutely prove that he really can save us from sin and hell. Trust in Jesus alone and nothing else for your salvation and you will be assured of paradise to come. Let us speak with him now. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your Son uh, to die on that cross to take the punishment that we fully deserve for the sin in our lives. Please, I pray that you soften our hearts and uh, take out the heart of stone that we have and give us a heart of flesh and just magnify what Jesus has done to save us and change us and make us live a righteous life not to get acceptance from you but to truly acknowledge what Jesus has done and never to take advantage of it I pray, I pray this in your son's name Amen